Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what you can do in uh, everything that's going on in the world. I am with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hello, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How are you? I am feeling overwhelmed, so I am looking forward to this conversation. (laughs) Me too. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to have the guest that we have today. Uh, Margaret Klein-Solomon is a clinical psychologist turned climate activist. She's the executive director of the Climate Emergency Fund, and she's the author of Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. We're going to talk to her a bit today about how we can all face the what feels like the impending doom of the climate emergency in a constructive way. So thanks so much for being here, Margaret. Thanks so much for having me. The way that we like to start our conversations is with a little bit of background on how you found yourself in a in an activist space, especially considering that you have a professional background in clinical psychology. Obviously, at some point, you decided to kind of break from that career path and pursue activism. And we're sort of like to begin with how that happened. Thank you. You're right. No, you know, no one's born an activist, right? So we get here through some kind of journey. Uh, And for me, when I was finishing my PhD in clinical psychology here in New York City in 2013, I had a kind of climate freakout. It felt like a red light was just like going off in my face. I I, I just, I, I couldn't focus. Just more and more, I was so alarmed. And then I had a kind of conversion experience when a good friend of mine said, because I, I, w- I had started to think, okay, well, maybe, you know, I'll see patients in the morning and in the afternoon, I'll do writing about the climate emergency. You know, I was in school, I was like an academic and a clinician. So the idea of, you know, doing studies or, or commentary, that's, that's what I was thinking. And my good friend said to me, don't start a blog. Discourse isn't enough. Think, what could you do to actually solve this? And I swear it it blew my mind and that my life has not been the same for those 10 years. Like not, not for one day because I was like, oh yeah, of course that's what I want to do is try and solve it. Not just, you know, be involved or like do some commentary, but like, let's try to go all the way. I had never let myself think that big, but once, yeah, once the gauntlet was thrown, I was like, well, this is what I'll do for the rest of my life. And how do you start that journey then? You're like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Like, that's <laughs> a really big, <laughs> really big thing. What What were your sort of your, your starting points, how you, how you got into becoming in the movement? Yeah. So I did about a year of reading and research and and writing. And it was a process of kind of learning in public, though, not that, not that I was reaching that many people. But so I would I did start a blog, but it was with a 
very clear trajectory of starting an organization with people who felt moved by the same ideas. And yeah, the core idea, you know, I'm, I don't practice anymore as a psychologist, but my worldview is still very much psychological. And the kind of core idea that I've been, that I was talking about then, and I'm still talking about is this is an emergency and we need to treat it like an emergency. We're, we're not doing so. We're in a state of collective delusion of normalcy. And, you know, as Greta would say that the house is on fire. If, if the house is on fire and people are sitting around, you know, working on the stuff that, you know, matters and that they care about, it's still a delusion. You're still going to get burnt. So, yeah, the idea of, to me, once we flip that switch and start treating climate like the existential emergency that it is, that's that's kind of, I mean, it's not the whole ball game, but for me, it, it kind of is because once we get there to like the mentality that the United States had uh, on the home front during World War II, you know, focus, dedication of resources, willingness to make sacrifices, just the overriding top national priority. Once we get there, oh my God, anything is possible. I want to talk a little bit about what that looks like, not just to make that transition mentally, but what, you know, a, a sort of more emergency focus on uh, climate action looks like. What what kinds of militant tactics are you talking about? What kind of emergency mobilizations, you know, what what do, what does that what does that mean for people and how they engage in this issue? Yeah, great question. And this is definitely a focus of my book that an individual can enter emergency mode, an organization can enter emergency mode, even a whole country and hopefully world can enter emergency mode. So, and it looks different, obviously, at depending on uh, who you are. So when an individual does, as I've done for the last 10 years, it's, uh, you know, like if your house is on fire, you focus. It is the overriding priority. What you, my, my, just speaking personally, but like one's self-esteem, my self-esteem is based on how much I'm serving the movement. Yeah, there's, it's, it's a mentality shift. I also, <laughs> I also call it the movement mentality. So as an organization, if you're entering emergency mode, Again, focus, you, you look at your focus, distribution of resources, communications, you know, and also tactics, which is, in a sense, a kind of communications. So Climate Emergency Fund really supports disruptive activists, uh, protesters who blockade private airports or shout down politicians or, I mean, they do all kinds of things, uh, block roads or throw soup on paintings, things that, things that make no sense unless it was a huge existential emergency that our institutions were ignoring. So that's, that's really to me, the connection between disruptive activism and emergency mode, why those things go so well together. And which is also majorly covered in my book is activism and the movement mentality. 
is if you think of the public as as I do as asleep, you know, or in a trance, sleepwalking, the activists are coming and shaking us. <laughs> like, look at what is happening. And I just I think it's just absolutely needed. Then on a on a national level, the the most hopeful I've ever felt about climate was reading histories of what this country did during World War II. Because we transformed our economy and society in just a few years to meet an existential threat. And we like revolutionized industrial production and to- or changed our demographic makeup of the country as people moved all over to, you know, 10% of Americans moved to a new state to work in a war job. And 40% of American vegetables were grown at home in victory gardens and gasoline and meat and a lot of uh, sugar and other commodities were rationed and everyone got a fair share. I mean, we are talking about incredible changes, again, to our society in just a few years. So that's really the the holy grail is to, to enter emergency mode together. Can you talk a little bit about how a person, for instance, me, who has, you know, a a panic disorder can get to emergency mode without getting to panic mode? Because I think that that's so often, you know, I I hear everything you're saying, go, yeah, yeah, of course, that makes sense. You know, and I found myself as I was reading your book, I, I just read the first part where you were sort of setting up the problem. And then I had to step aside and, you know, go help the kids or something and went, ah, I'm like ready to panic before I can get to the how do I solve this? So, you know, what? How does a how do we distinguish between panic mode and emergency mode? Yeah, great, great point. So, panic mode is debilitating, right? Like in the fire metaphor, for example, children sometimes in a house fire will hide, right? It's like it's like the worst possible thing that they could do, but they're they're panicked. They don't know, and so I think I think the first thing is to realize that it's it's normal, it's fine. Do not judge yourself for panicking or having an anxiety reaction. That's that's a major point in, in the book and just in general is this situation is so hard. We do not need to make it harder on ourselves by judging our emotional reactions. So having a having a open and welcoming and self-compassionate response to the whole range of feelings, which absolutely does include terror, fear, or uh, in some cases, panic. So yeah, that's step one. And I think, I mean, I think to to keep in mind several things uh, that all of that activism that is happening and what could be the greatest, you know, humanity's greatest hour, our our chance to actually fulfill our potential in terms of protecting and restoring as much life and nature as possible. I mean, it's really, you know, it is, it is terrifying. I absolutely, I, I do will not tell you, and I would reject anyone who does tell you, you know, don't worry. It's all going to be fine. You know, like it's, it's not that bad, anything, anything like that. It is so bad, but yeah, I mean, 
there's still a possibility for, I, I believe, not just limiting the damage, but restoration. And to me, that possibility, like, like, and again, read about, read about World War II, read about what, what is possible there also included in the book, but that the situation has gotten so bad, see, really because we haven't tried collectively. I mean, some people have tried, some organizations have tried, but as a society, I mean, it's like our, you know, less than 10th priority or something, you know, where it's, so if you can imagine, like during World War II, when consumer cars were not sold because the government needed those factories to be producing tanks and planes and ships and, you know, huge research funding was, you know, pr produced for medical research and blood transfusions happening on the battlefield. And, you know, we discovered during that time, the first computer uh, sonar technology, I mean, the atomic bomb, which it was an amazing discovery, though, you know, obviously has a lot of baggage and terrible implications, but as just as a purely scientific matter, it's amazing. So these, I, like, there's so much human genius now going into what finance and hedge funds and, you know, derivatives and apps and but like, I, yeah, I just really believe in humanity. I think we have incredible potential. And if we direct it towards this incredible challenge, this horrifying reality, I just, I mean, I just think there's no limit. To what we can accomplish. Does that help? Yeah, I, I hope is always good. <laughs> <laughs> hope, hope based on reality, not based on minimizing how bad this uh, emergency really is. I thought there was a great quote in your book that kind of spoke to that, that was the, that was, this is a self-help book, but its goal is not make, to make you feel less pain. Its purpose is to make you feel your pain more directly and constructively to turn it into action that protects humanity and all life, which I thought was a sort of nice way of reframing the purpose of writing a climate self-help book. Um, and also what a self-help book could be, should be, you know, can, can be. So in any case, I wanted to talk a little bit about I feel like people hear about climate change in media primarily as like a weather phenomenon. And of course, we know that climate change impacts like a lot of other issues and intersects with issues that people work on independently, like, you know, food scarcity and healthcare and housing and, you know, almost everything that anyone is working on. And I think oftentimes people who are working in those sectors can, you know, feel overstretched when they suddenly think like, wait, now I also have to solve climate change on top of the sort of more acute issues around housing or healthcare or whatever it is. And so I'm, I wanted to talk a little bit about how people working on other related priorities can ensure that they're sort of also serving this cause and how they should think about their role in the climate movement. Yeah, great question. The primary threat of climate change, I mean, it has all these different, creates all these different problems, but the number one thing that threatens to cause the collapse of civilization is drought leading to crop failure and food shortages leading to 
uh, internal and international migration, which can lead to failed states. That is precisely what happened in Syria. They had the worst drought in their history, ton of internal migration, political destabilization, and you know just absolutely horrible civil war. So, so you mentioned food and housing, right? These are absolutely at the core of what is changing in the world and what is so needed. So, I mean, I would say the first thing is just awareness of the emergency, the whole, the full scope of it, and particularly in your area, right? What's, what's going on? What is climate doing to food supply in different parts of the world and what is projected with that? And, and you know, how is it going to play out? It's hard to know for sure, but it's definitely not good. And with housing, I mean, the amount, <laughs> large areas of the world are becoming too hot to to live in or flooded or whatever. But so housing, the creation of new housing for internal and international migrants is absolutely huge. So, So yeah, to recognize that those working in those sectors, like you are in the climate movement, you might not realize it, but this is, this is part of it. So yeah, just getting educated and knowing what's going on and then understanding that there is no way with even with all of the best food policy or all of the best housing policy, there will be no way to feed and house everyone unless we get to zero emissions. I, I mean, it's just everything, everything that we do, every advance that we make will be just brutally taken away as the climate emergency accelerates. So I think that's really important too, is that like, so it's, I mean, it's just totally entwined to, to realize that the climate emergency necessitates huge amount of advancement and development of food and housing policy. And I think uh, we should have a commitment to feed and house everyone in the world and if we accomplished that or to make sure that they have that available, if we accomplished that, we'd be so much better. We'd be so much better able to avoid like the Syria outcome, you know, the intense destabilization and civil war. But but then, yeah, also recognizing that you can't you can't in this time stay in your like issue silo and pretend that the climate emergency isn't coming. I mean, I, I'm aware of some, for example, human rights organizations that don't want to deal with climate. And they say, well, you know, we're human rights. We don't do climate. And it's like, yeah, well, climate's coming. It's, I mean, it's, it's here. Like it's, you know, so you can ignore it. You can try to, but it's, yeah, it's a, a, every, any nonprofit or organization that has a mission has to realize that it will fail to achieve that mission unless we reach zero emissions as soon as humanly possible. So we've talked some kind of around your book, but can you talk uh, listeners through how they can use your book, sort of it, it's a workbook really to, to figure out 
precisely the goal of this podcast, right? What can you do? So can you talk a little bit about the, the framing and, and what you're doing with this book? Yeah, thank you. The book takes readers through a five-step process. Step one, face the climate emergency. And as I was saying, without as much as possible, without looking away, without minimizing, just what are we dealing with? So that's step one. Step two is to process that emotionally. And that is so hard. That is honestly, I think, the missing piece for so many people because it's painful as hell to actually take it in and process it and think about your future and your family's future and the, you know, the human family. So, but as I said, with self-compassion and motivation, it's, it's totally, it's, it's doable. And, and in fact, it's something that millions of people are, are doing to undertaking this process. So once you've experienced your fear and grief and rage and shame and like everything, a huge stew of feelings, then you can move to step three, which is to rethink your life story. And this means, why, why am I here? Why am I here in this time of collapse or this time of, you know, epic challenge for humanity? And to, to challenge people to think, Maybe it's, maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe there's actually something that you're supposed to be contributing. Maybe, maybe, maybe you were made for this. And step four is to enter emergency mode, which we've discussed. I, I talk a lot about ACT UP, the AIDS movement. I think that that is the most relevant comparison. I mean, every movement, we have things to learn from every movement of from history, but ACT UP, it was very clear. They were fighting for their lives and they acted like it. And it was extremely effective. And then finally, step five is to join the disruptive climate movement. And I, I talk about many ways that you can do that. You don't have to be in the streets. I'm not personally. There's so many things you can do in a support role for that, such as fundraise or you know, cook for activists or go pick them up if they when they're getting out on bail or do the bookkeeping or whatever. There's there's so much that movements need that really it's about assessing your own skills and risk tolerance and what you have to offer, how much time you have, et cetera, and, and finding a, finding your place in the movement. So that the, the big picture, the book helps people turn their pain, which is appropriate and worth honoring, but it helps them use it as fuel to become activists to turn that pain into effective action. I wondered if you could talk through what some of the kind of intermediary goals we can look for are in, in terms of addressing climate change. You know, I know zero emissions is the sort of larger goal, but obviously we need some smaller benchmarks uh, along the way so that we can sort of tell that what we're doing is working. So what should we be looking for along the way? 
Right. Great. So a very important goal that many of the climate emergency fund grantees, activist campaigns are working on is ending the expansion of the fossil fuel infrastructure. So for example, here in New York state, we just became the first state in the country to ban gas hookups in new construction. The vast majority of new construction in New York state, there are some exceptions, but the vast majority of construction is going to be all electric from here on out. And that's a, the gas ban on new construction is something we've seen in about a hundred cities, including Washington DC and New York city. And the first one was in Berkeley, California. And and then there, then there's other fights for, you know, stopping the construction of a pipeline or an export terminal or Willow in Alaska, oil project that we just, I mean, it's really like, are we insane? We're, we're continuing to build, to expand the fossil fuel infrastructure at this late hour. So there's many levers locally, state and nationally where you can work on yeah, cutting that off, and I, which I think is more effective than, you know, incentivizing just laws that say no more. We're stopping. So yeah, that's that. I think is critical. There's a there's a also a treaty called the Anti Fossil Fuel Proliferation Treaty that actually the California State Senate just passed, and several countries have passed, like Colombia, and they and it says we're not going to expand the fossil fuel infrastructure anymore. So there's there's really a push for this. And it, it gives me a ton of hope because the thing is, in a capitalism, capitalistic society, if you can't expand, you know, you're, you're going down. And that is ultimately what we need to happen with the fossil fuel industry. Can you tell listeners both how they can get your book and uh, also how they can find you elsewhere online and, and find out about the Climate Emergency Fund? Thank you. The book is available on Bookshop and Amazon, and readers can also go to facingtheclimateemergency.org and download a free chapter if you want to explore before committing. And uh, in terms of social media, I'm on Twitter at Climate Psych. And also come and check out the Climate Emergency Fund website. Great. And we'll add all of those to the show notes so that people can just easily click through. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we did not cover that you'd like to add before we close? There's one thing, which is also people can go to climateawakening.org, which is a place where you can sign up for a conversation with strangers a virtual conversation with strangers in which you watch short video prompts of me uh, saying something like, you know, it's important to be self-compassionate with your climate emotions or whatever. And then the group gets a question, a prompt, and each person gets three minutes to share it. Particularly, how do you feel about the climate emergency? So it's, it's really amazing to, it's, it's in one sense, very simple right? Just a, a safe emotional space where people can answer that question and hear what other people say. But I just, it happens over and over. People say, wow, no one ever asked me how I feel about the climate emergency, or I thought I was the only one. I thought I was all alone. 
with these feelings or, and I mean, it's just, again, I think it's the missing piece. We, we don't talk about it. Why are we, why are we crying about the climate emergency? I mean, it's horrible. So, so by expressing this, by talking about it, by processing it internally, I think, yeah, I, I really think we can make a huge step in solving this emergency. And uh, if you're like me, go talk to your therapist about it too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And if your therapist says, like mine did when I first brought this up, she thought I was overreacting um, and you know being neurotic. Well, at first she told me, "You're really worried about this, but you don't know much." And I was like, "Oh my god, that is such a challenge." So I went, and like, <laughs> I went and read like ten books, and I came back and I said, "I was right." <laughs> um the most satisfying sentence anyone can ever say <laughs> heck yeah but i mean it the, the point is not every therapist understands how bad the climate emergency is and that's okay if they're willing to learn if they're not then i i it's, i don't think it's gonna work i mean you, you want someone to who can help you with reality well, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a great book and it was a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, I feel a little more uh, like like there's something I can do. <laughs> so that's always the goal of these conversations. So thank you. Thank you. There absolutely is. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wesson and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at What Can I Do Pod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.